So I'm sitting here in the Toronto airport along with a few hundred other people waiting for connections that seem to not exist. <laughs> That's India Robinson. She's the sister of one of our producers, Savvy. And last week, India was having a pretty awful travel day. I'm looking up at the board right now of flights, and it's just red across the board, all delayed. So, I mean, it kind of seems to be a problem everywhere, and the delays seem to just keep piling on, on top of each other. India had a layover in the Toronto airport, but her flight to New Jersey was delayed and eventually just canceled. So she had to sleep overnight in the Toronto airport. All I can say is try not to travel. If you have taken a flight this summer, you may have experienced some of this yourself. Canceled flights, lost bags, long delays, or just high ticket prices. And you may have also heard a lot of reasons for these problems, from bad weather to airline employees calling in sick. But as transportation reporter Lori Aratani explains, the biggest reason behind delays and cancellations is the airlines themselves. I think one line you heard last year, you've heard throughout the pandemic, is it's a global pandemic. There's no playbook. And yes, that is true. There's no playbook for for how you were going to recover after a global pandemic. But once they started to see the recovery, they should have known, right? And I think one of the reasons why consumers are even more frustrated is they're thinking, we gave you $54 billion to keep people on staff. So when we were ready to fly, you'd be there for us. And you're not. I'm delayed. My flight is canceled. I'm super frustrated. Why did we give you all that money? From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi, in for Martin Powers. It's Friday, August 5th. Today, what's wrong with air travel right now? And later in the show, we remember a television icon, Nichelle Nichols. She was a legend on Star Trek and a pioneer for Black women in Hollywood. But first... Lori had a conversation with Martine, who was once a transportation reporter herself. They discuss what the federal data reveals about what's gone wrong with flying. And so faced with all of these problems and complaints about their performance, what are the airlines saying? Like, how are they justifying how difficult it has been to travel over the past few months? It's staffing. You know, during the pandemic, airlines made the case that when people stopped flying, they were going to have to do massive layoffs. So they said, we need help to keep people on the payroll. And so there was the CARES Act, and they got billions of dollars to keep people on the payroll with this idea that when people were ready to fly again, airlines would be ready to fly them wherever they wanted to go. They could keep operating even though so few people were flying. And they did, but they also encouraged a lot of people to leave. So hmm. the industry lost about 50,000 people. And then... Wait, why would they encourage people to leave if the whole point of this aid from the government was to keep people on the payroll? It seems like the worry was that we don't know when this is going to end and we feel like we have to reduce our staffing. So we're going to encourage people to leave who want to leave. We're going to buy them out. And the problem was is they didn't anticipate that demand was going to come back so quickly. They've got all these people that they need to train, but they don't have enough 
people to train them, so it all backs up. And mm. so part of it is they don't have pilots. You know, the folks that move your bags on and off the plane or move them between planes, they're short of that. They're caught in the same thing. There are all these people, all these industries that want to hire, and they want to hire too, so they've got to raise their salaries. And the other thing, a lot of the airlines have been able to staff up. They've really tried to staff up. But there's a difference, they said. You might get the juniority benefit because these folks are are cheaper because they're newer and they're lower on the salary scale, but they're also not as experienced. So, you know, someone who's been working, you know, moving bags for many years maybe knows all the tricks or the shortcuts or a gate agent may know how to move passengers through or rebook passengers. You know, someone who's just starting or, you know, a couple months into the job may just not be as nimble. Hmm. But, you know, I feel like when I hear airlines talk about this, they don't always talk openly about their role and, frankly, like lack of planning for how the demand for air travel would come back and being able to staff up in time to be able to conduct all these flights. I mean, I hear more things like weather, air traffic controllers. Can you talk about some of the ways that airlines are essentially trying to put blame on other factors in explaining away this summer? I think. Part of it is, you know, they've gotten a lot of blame, and so they want to try and spread it out. It's not just us. And sure, weather is a factor, but we've always had weather. It's not like we haven't had weather. It's not like there haven't been hurricanes. It's not like lots of people don't want to fly to Florida. But because they're so thinly staffed, they just don't have the backup, right? They don't have these crews that are just waiting on reserve to hop in when something goes wrong. Lori, I know that you've been talking with airline executives about these problems, and you spoke with Scott Kirby, the CEO of United. Can you talk a little bit about what he said in response to some of these issues and and what they're trying to do about the staffing problem? What has been interesting about how things have played out and how sort of the blame game has played out this year is that it's been very public. You know, there's always tension between the airlines and the FAA about how many flights they want to operate and how many air traffic controllers there are. But we started to see a lot of finger pointing where, you know, particularly in Florida, where a lot of airlines have gone because there's a lot of demand with executives like Scott Kirby, Delta executives at Bastion pointing the finger and say, well, it's air traffic control. You know, there aren't enough and that's mucking everything up. Well, it turns out if you look at the data, right, you know, the data says it's air traffic control is a factor, but airlines themselves were responsible for a lot of the delays. So when Scott Kirby was doing his most recent earnings call, which was, you know, a good good quarter for them, we asked him because they had put out a letter that said, hey, you know, we had a great 4th of July weekend, but, oh, air traffic control, that was, air, there weren't enough controllers and this was a factor. And, you know, the FAA is usually very measured, You know, they don't get into these sort of public spats, and the FAA shot back right away and said, hey, it wasn't us. It wasn't us, United. It was you. Well, look, I think the whole system is strained. And on this call, it was interesting, on all the earnings calls, many of the CEOs were much more conciliatory. I mean, there's tight staffing everywhere. I mean, that's part of that. That is the reason that we're pulling our capacity down um, and waiting to grow until the whole system catches up. It's not unique to the FAA. I mean, it's, it's every everything that touches, well, I mean, it's almost everything in the whole economy. Certainly um, a big chunk of things that touch aviation are tight. 
So I think they see that it it's not productive. I think they've realized to fight with the FAA, right? You don't want everyone to get back in the corner. You want to try and figure out a way to work together. And you know, while you're theoretically scheduled, if it's a good weather day and nobody calls in sick, that everything can work. Um, there is weather, and people do call in sick, and sometimes the jet bridge breaks, and the power goes out for 20 minutes, and like stuff happens, um, and the system just doesn't have any buffer um, to deal with that. But Lori, I have to say, I mean, I have some skepticism as a consumer about this, like, oh, well, you know, we're all just trying to figure this out together. Yes, things aren't perfect, but they're also making a ton of money and we're not seeing a relationship between the subpar service that we're receiving as consumers and the incredible amounts that we're paying for airline fares. And so why is it that the that the airlines are making so much money right now and is that going to change in the future? Like, what incentive do they have to really figure out solutions to these problems if if now is a gangbusters time for these airlines? I think they all realize profits are great, but they realize people are only going to keep flying. Right now, people really want to fly. Many folks haven't flown for such a long time that they're like, okay, I know the tickets are high, but I really want to see grandma, so I'm willing to bite the bullet. But they're not going to be. They're not going to be. <laughs> Lori, I love this example because I'm going to fly to see my grandma, and literally had this conversation in my head, booking this ticket last month, being like, "Oh my god, is it? I know it's worth it. I love my grandma so much. She's getting older, but oh my god, this ticket!" Right, but you're willing to do it. But are you going to be willing to do it in another three months? Are you going to that? I think that's what mm-hmm. airlines realize is that yes, they're making money, but they they need to stay profitable. And they need to win back customers. And if customers feel like they can't depend on them, they need to run reliable because people won't, people eventually will get fed up. I'm also curious about what other factors might start to play out in the future. There was big news last week when we saw that uh, JetBlue announced they are planning to buy Spirit Airlines. I wonder how that will affect these kinds of problems going forward in the future and whether there's going to be more competition and how that could affect what we're experiencing when we fly. The Spirit JetBlue merger, if the Department of Justice allows it to go through, is, is interesting there. One of the trends that we, we've we seen during the pandemic is that smaller communities are really getting cut out of the equation because of the pilot shortage, right, and because airlines want to make money Smaller planes don't make as much money. They use a pilot, they use crew, they use fuel, but they don't make as much money as bigger planes carrying more people going to bigger cities. So you're seeing a lot of smaller communities being cut out. So a lot of airports that may have had two or three carriers, maybe down to one carrier. There is an airport I went to go visit up in Williamsport, central Pennsylvania. They have a beautiful airport that they just rebuilt. It's absolutely gorgeous, and they have no commercial air service. And it mm. is it is a very sad place. The TSA folks are keeping that equipment polished, but there's, there's no one there because there are no flights. And there's also concern about consolidation, which, you know, that's the big question about, yes, JetBlue just bought Spirit, but, you know, the Biden administration has been very vocal about consolidation in industries. And, you know, airline industry, there are four carriers that really dominate. I mean, you have all these smaller players, but, you know, for a lot of folks, you have one choice. The four airlines we're talking about, that doesn't include JetBlue, right? That's American, Delta, United, and Southwest. 
Yes. So those are your four dominant carriers. And depending on who's doing the calculations, they have 65 to 80 percent of the Mm. market. So JetBlue is making the case here of like, well, we're actually the little guy. And by becoming stronger, by having Spirit become part of our company, that we can compete and try to serve more people, serve people at better prices um, than these four bigger guys. Yeah, they're making the case if they are able to merge with Spirit, they would be the fifth largest carrier, and they could be a stronger competitor that can rival these four top carriers. So we'll see. But this gives JetBlue a huge leg up because at a time when there's a pilot shortage and a staffing shortage, you've just acquired an airline and, you know, hundreds of pilots and flight attendants and crew members. So we'll see. You mentioned that the government has taken a real interest in this this announcement of, of JetBlue buying Spirit and that more broadly they are worried about airlines consolidating and what that means for the people who are paying those prices for fares. What are other ways in which the government is getting involved in some of the problems that we're seeing or or ways that they're trying to regulate to prevent the worst of the worst from happening when it comes to delays and canceled flights and people's travel itineraries being totally wrecked? Well, in recent months, you've seen Secretary Buttigieg be more vocal. Uh, The numbers appear to have improved relative to Memorial Day, but still seeing an elevated level of cancellations. Uh, and some stories we're hearing from passengers that are, are, are just unacceptable in terms of their consumer experience. He had a virtual meeting with all the CEOs. After there were some troubles over Memorial Day, there were troubles over Father's Day and Juneteenth. So he met with them to say, you know, what are you, what are you going to do? You're also seeing folks in Congress, Senators Richard Blumenthal from Connecticut and Ed Markey from Massachusetts have unveiled legislation that would sort of get at this refund question and sort of strengthen consumer protections because there are things, there are actions that DOT can take that maybe they weren't so aggressive during the Trump administration. We may see something different uh, during this administration. You know, these lawmakers are getting lots of calls. They also fly. Right. They yeah. they also fly. So <laughs> everyone know, has skin in the game here. We all feel exactly collectively. Exactly. Well, what is your advice for travelers as they are navigating all of this? And as we think about the end of the summer, people who might be traveling over the next couple of weeks or even going into the fall and the winter and holidays and preparing for those travel woes that I think invariably will come. What what, what would you say to people who are trying to figure out how to do this the least painful way possible? Well, one of the things folks have always told me is, you know, try and book the early flight. You book a flight at the beginning of the day because then there's more chance that if something happens, you might be able to get on another flight. So so take that early flight whenever possible, fly direct. You know, be patient and just be prepared. Have a backup plan. Pack some stuff that you can keep with you in case you get stuck in the airport for a long time or in case you have to overnight. So a toothbrush, change of clothes, some snacks, and just be patient and flexible. You know, be kind to the crew members. I mean, they're they're under a lot of stress. You have to remember this is what they're, what are we on, the third summer that yeah. they're going through this. Yeah, of course. I mean, they're under a lot of stress too. So be be kind. Be kind to your fellow passengers. Yeah, that's, and don't. that's general good life advice, I think. Yeah, exactly. 
Lori, thank you so much for all of this advice, uh, this information, and this commiseration. I really appreciate it. <laughs> well, I hope you get to see your grandma. She's going to be delighted to see you, I'm sure. <laughs> I, I know she will be. That's why it's worth it. Lori Aratani covers transportation for The Post. She spoke with Martine Powers. Sabi Robinson produced this story. This week, the Department of Transportation unveiled new rules to help travelers with delayed or canceled flights. Right now, airlines give out refunds on a case-by-case basis, but this new proposal would force airlines to refund customers for domestic flights delayed by three or more hours and six or more hours for international flights. But it could be a while before any new rules go into effect. After the break, we talk about the life and legacy of a cultural icon, Nichelle Nichols. We'll be right back. There's always more to the story. I'm Leanne Caldwell, anchor of Washington Post Live. Each week, we bring you inside conversations between the newsroom and the people we cover. From global leaders enacting change to cutting-edge artists redefining our culture. And we make you and your questions part of every conversation. Listen to Washington Post Live wherever you get your podcasts and watch on demand at WashingtonPostLive.com. And now, one more thing. I'm afraid you have it all wrong, Mr. Spock, all of you. I've been monitoring some of their old-style radio waves. The Empire spokesman trying to ridicule their religion. But he couldn't. Last weekend, actress Nichelle Nichols passed away at the age of 89. Nichols will perhaps be best remembered for her role as Lieutenant Uhura on Star Trek, the communications officer on the USS Enterprise. This was in the 1960s, and it was a big deal that Nichols, a Black actress, was playing one of the leading roles in this prominent TV show. And to many, Uhura was more than just a sci-fi character. She was a symbol of empowerment. For my dad, I'm sure it was a, a very big deal because, you know, my father was in the 60s a young Puerto Rican kid growing up in Prince George's County, Maryland in a neighborhood that after the civil rights movement had transitioned from all white to all black. David Betancourt is a reporter at The Post who covers comic book culture. And watching a show as a kid that had this black woman in a very important role, you know, there was nowhere else on TV that he would have seen something like that at that time. And Given how he grew up, I think it was a bridge to acceptance, a bridge to realizing that it's okay to be with people that aren't the same as you. You know, my dad was kind of in a strange new world as well in terms of growing up as a kid where most of the kids in the neighborhood don't look like you. So I think to see a show like Star Trek and see someone like Nichelle kind of working in that same type of environment, you know, had an impact on She's leading me around. I believe I can trust her. She's imaginative, or you might say, Mr. Spock, fascinating.
There's so many significant factors to Nichelle's role as Uhura on Star Trek, the first of which being that this role was supposed to take place in the future. Tell me how your planet Vulcan looks on a lazy evening when the moon is full. Vulcan has no moon, Miss Uhura. I'm not surprised, Mr. Spock. So what she represented in her role was a future where a black woman could ascend to be on a starship and travel through space and have space adventures with a cool crew. You know, Star Trek, a lot of people don't realize this, but it was only three seasons. And after the first season, she was thinking about leaving. And she confided in Martin Luther King Jr. that she was thinking about pursuing other opportunities. And he pulled her aside and said, you've got to stick through it. He said, for the first time on television, we will be seen as we should be seen every day. As intelligent, quality beautiful people who can sing, dance, and but who can go into space. A Star Trek crew on a Star Trek ship traveling through space needs to be diverse, needs to be inclusive. So if you have this beautiful black actress in the mid-60s on a bridge being equal, then it really doesn't make much sense for spinoff shows in the 80s and 90s and 2000s to not reflect that as well. It would have been going backwards. And that's one thing Star Trek is they've never gone backwards. What Nichelle represented for black sci-fi fans, because that's a genre where you can see yourself, but you don't always see yourself in the lead or as the protagonist. We are now at a point with Star Trek Discovery and even the most recent Obi-Wan Kenobi series where we're seeing black women in roles of leadership, roles as protagonists, central parts of the story being told. And I don't think you get to that point where we're without the impact of Nichelle's original debut on Star Trek. It became, for me, a liberation and uh, my own uh, odyssey. David Betancourt is a comic book culture reporter for The Post. This story was produced by Arjun Singh. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was edited by Maggie Penman and Rena Flores. It was mixed by Sean Carter. Tomorrow, we'll have a bonus Saturday episode in your feeds. We get to hear from author Angela Garbus about her latest book, Essential Labor, Mothering as Social Change. It's a great conversation about care work, the overlooked and undervalued work done by mothers, nurses, and people who take care of our children. We'll air that tomorrow. Our executive producer is Maggie Penman. Our supervising senior producer is Rena Flores. Ted Muldoon is our senior producer. Our editor is Lexi Diao. Arjun Singh, Charlotte Freeland, Jordan Marie Smith, Ariel Plotnick, and Rennie Svernovsky are producers. Sabi Robinson and Emma Talkoff are assistant producers. Sean Carter is our engineer. Our intern is Natalie Bettendorf. The Post's director of audio is Renita Jablonski. I'm Elahe Izadi. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.
There's always more to the story. I'm Leanne Caldwell, anchor of Washington Post Live. Each week, we bring you inside conversations between the newsroom and the people we cover, from global leaders enacting change to cutting-edge artists redefining our culture. And we make you and your questions part of every conversation. Listen to Washington Post Live wherever you get your podcasts and watch on demand at WashingtonPostLive.com.